Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 77, Loose Lips Sink Ships. But do they? With the war of words continuing between the military and the merchant marine about whose fault all the sinkings were, another element was added to the battle. Whether the civilian sailors themselves were also hurting themselves by talking about the details of their next voyage in public. For the military, the accusation went like this. Sailors would talk about, whether complaining or bragging, about an upcoming supply run. This would be overheard by a Nazi agent who would then radio the information so it would help the sub-commanders find their next target. And all this officially got started on January 22, 1942. On that day, the Associated Press put out an article entitled How Spy Ring Caused Ship to Be Sunk is Told. The piece was an interview with a Canadian seaman, Alan Harvey, a chief steward in the British Merchant Service. He himself would go on to be declared dead four times after four attacks, but amazingly, he made it through each time. Of course, cynics might say, as it was Harvey's contention that U.S. sailors were the problem with their loose lips, that as he had survived four devastating attacks and pulled through, perhaps he was the spy. Either way, here is what he told the reporters. The particular ship that Harvey was on was about to leave Britain, and one of its crew was saying goodbye to his girlfriend at a pub. He told her of the details of his voyage, and this was overheard by a bartender. This bartender, while twirling a mustache in an evil manner, one supposes, went to a local theater and passed on the information. This person radioed the information to a waiting surfaced sub. Sure enough, on the way to the Mediterranean, the ship was torpedoed and sunk. Luckily, Harvey survived to tell the story. The boyfriend did not. Now, for a dose of reality. As the American press was taking down this incredible story, not one of them asked, how did Harvey know the process of how the information was passed? Still, Harvey volunteered that all the spies were caught, and that's how he got the details. Did the American press run out and try to corroborate any of this? No, because it was better to be out first with the story than to check its accuracy. Either way, when the story came out, the U.S. Navy took this offered gift and perpetuated it, as it served their purpose. For a frightened citizenry or frightened merchant sailors were more likely to be compliant, and who would not want that, as there was currently a blame game being played out. Thus was born the slogan, Loose Lips Sink Ships, which came from the War Advertising Council just created. And not wanting to be unpatriotic or get fellow Americans killed, this saying also conjured up ideas that to complain about the numerous sinkings was un-American. Also, that putting the blame on the military was bad for the war effort. And just like that, the American people bitterly kept their complaints to themselves, and those in charge mostly got a free pass for the deplorable state of ship protection. Like in Vegas, the house had won again. Now, another dose of reality. 
The sheer tonnage of shipping traveling north or south between Maine and Florida was to such an extent that subcommanders did not need any details. After all, there were more ships off the East Coast than any subs nearby had torpedoes. However, the phrase, loose lips sink ships, was concise, snappy, and an alliteration. Thus easier to remember, what it was, was not accurate. But none of the topics covered thus far was the culprit that brought ruin to the oil tanker SS Dixie Arrow and its crew, for there was another plank of conventional wisdom in early 1942 that said enemy subs would stay down during the day to allow their crews to rest, only to go on the prowl at night. This was another falsehood that was about to be disproven. As the sun came up on March 26, 1942, the 33 crewmen of the 8,000-ton oil tanker SS Dixie Arrow breathed a sigh of relief, because everyone knew the Germans preferred to hunt at night. So the next 10 hours or so should be uneventful, one of the favorite words of the merchant marine. However, running against this notion was U-Boat 71 and its desperate captain, Waller Flaschenberg, who had not scored a success in his last five outings and feared being pulled by Admiral Donitz himself. Thus, the captain was up and at it early that morning of March 26th. Looking through his attack periscope, he spotted the masts of the oil tanker on a well-used route and gave chase, to be sure the tanker's master, Anders A. Johansson, had done all he could to make sure that no light had emanated from his vessel the night before. But now the sun was up, and it was giving away the tanker's position, and there was nothing the captain could do about that. That morning, near Cape Lookout, about 50 miles southwest of Hatteras, near the end of this imperfect peninsula, the Dixie sailed north, full of oil, to New Jersey. The first warning that this would not be a normal day was when some of the crew reported to the captain that not only were they passing through oil, obviously from another sunken tanker, but to the west, closer to the coast, they spotted billowing clouds of black smoke from a fire, from another doomed tanker. Clearly, this was not the place to be, but again, the crew was relieved by the still-rising sun. This relief ended at 8.58 a.m. With some of the crew finishing up their breakfast, like 18-year-old Richard Rushton from Kansas, and about to go topside to earn his paycheck, suddenly a torpedo struck the tanker on its starboard side. And just like that, the sunlight coming from the east and getting more intense with each minute was gone, replaced by darkness as flame and smoke blocked out the rays. Now on deck, Rushton watched an old sea hand give into panic, something the teenager did not think was possible. The older man ran to a lifeboat on the starboard side, where the fire was inching up to the deck, and without thinking, simply dropped the boat with a part of the line wrapped around one of his arms. As the lifeboat was 2,000 pounds and the man had simply let it drop, it pulled him over into the flames. 
There was no thinking, no process of steps, as is normal when lowering a lifeboat. The elderly seaman just seemed obsessed with getting it lowered and himself out of this fireboat that had 8,000 tons of oil below their feet. Of course, no one can truly say how they will react in a moment of possible death, but Oscar Chapel of Texas conducted himself better than the man who was just dragged down into the flames a moment ago. When the first torpedo hit, and there were to be two more, as Captain Waller Flaschenberg was determined to get his first kill, Chapel was in the wheelhouse, the little cabin-like structure where the wheel and navigation equipment is held. As the torpedo hit just below the wheelhouse, all within the structure were killed, except Chapel. Surely, this was pure luck, but not what happened next. As Chapel was probably trying to assess the situation around him, the second and third torpedoes came, both hitting amidships, breaking the back of the large vessel. Though not dead, Chapel had to be injured by this point. Still, he looked out of the glass, and ahead of him he saw several men running to the front of the ship. The problem was, they were not running to safety, but from the growing flames. Chapel could feel that the engine crew had cut power, but the ship still had enough momentum to generate a wind, and that wind was pushing the flames towards these men below, hence their fleeing to the front of the ship. But now that they had done so, they were trapped, and the flames were still edging ever closer to them. The next ten seconds has to be surmised, but considering eyewitness accounts, it's clear that Chapel instantly decided to sacrifice himself, to save those men. Turning the ship to the right, it still had enough speed for the wind to push the licking flames away from those men and right at the wheelhouse. Chapel would be dead within a few minutes, but one of the men he saved, a Paul Myers, could see Chapel as he turned the wheel and held it there as the flames turned away from the men and right at him. Myers ended his statement with, Chapel died at the helm. As Chapel disappeared from view, the tanker, though decelerating, was still moving, which only put more oil and flame out over the waves and around the ship, making escape that much harder. Near the stern of the ship, Kansas teen Richard Rushton was trying to decide his next move, made harder by witnessing more experienced men around him completely forgetting their training. Reaching aft port number four lifeboat, Richard jumped in and began to ready it for launching. Soon, seven other men were beside him, and together they lowered the craft. Right away, they could see that the flames had control of the entire starboard side and were now coming around the back. It was now or never. But when the lifeboat hit the water, the tanker still had forward momentum. Hence, the lifeboat was being pulled along like an afterthought. And with the rope still attached, the smaller vessel almost went nose first into the water. Seeing this, the six men still on the ship who were working the ropes and pulleys that lowered the lifeboat, had planned on climbing down those same ropes to join in on the getaway. 
But when they saw the boat below, about to succumb to the tanker's continued movement, they straightway cut the very ropes that would have given them a solid chance of survival. Another selfless moment of heroism. For it was better for some of the crew to survive than none of them, even if the doomed men were the ones making the decision. With the rope cut, the lifeboat began to slow down, falling ever behind the still-moving tanker. Rushton and company had consoled themselves with the idea that, now that the rope was cut, they would paddle ahead to save their crewmates. But as the gulf between the tanker and the lifeboat grew, this idea had to be abandoned. Fortunately, incredibly, those six men would jump overboard, surviving that, swim away from the fires, surviving that, and find a raft that would hold them until help came. Clearly a reward for being willing to sacrifice themselves. But other crewmen were not so lucky. By now, as Rushton's lifeboat moved away from the tanker, the area was enveloped in a 360-degree wind. What caused this and other such windstorms as tankers were flame was, as the massive fire heated up the air above the ship, that air rose at a fast rate, and nature abhors a vacuum. Thus, colder air from all sides rushed in to fill the void. This caused a tornado-like wind that dominated some of the other smaller craft around them, and those were pushed back into the flames. Rushton then spotted a lone man on a raft that would have been his lifesaver in almost any other instance. As it was, the man did not have the strength to paddle the raft enough to overpower the windstorm. Rushton and company then realized all the man had to do was climb off the raft and swim to them. But his instincts, certainly in panic mode, told him not to abandon his raft. As Rushton screamed for the man to jump into the water, he watched as raft and man were push-pulled into a wall of flame. As Rushton was screaming, trying to help the panicked man, seven crewmen jumped off the front of the tanker, another eight from its stern. The men instinctively stayed away from the oil as they feared it would catch fire. But there was another danger. As the men came into contact with the oil, it stuck to them. And then, like a snowball rolling down a snow-covered hill, more oil adhered itself to the oil already on the men. Soon their size was altered significantly. But they would find that the oil would help them float. This was good as their arms were getting tired, but less good as if they came into contact with any flames. Then it was all over. Given the location of the tanker when it was hit, the explosion was heard within seconds on land, and the ever-growing tower of black smoke marked the location. Right away, several motorboats already on the water turned and made for the stricken vessel, as did a few patrol aircraft but most importantly, the destroyer USS Tarbell, currently on duty. Being a destroyer, the Tarbell was the first ship to arrive after a 30-minute dash. Slowing down, the flames and oils were navigated through while survivors were picked up. Obsessed, and rightly so, that the enemy sub 
was still in the area. The destroyer's captain had some of the crew keep an eye out, while others focused on the task at hand. Coming upon 14 oil-soaked men in the water, that in itself was a danger, as they could burst into flame during the process of rescue, the destroyer did not stop and pick up the men, but rather slowed down and threw a large cargo net over the side and told the men to grab hold and to start to climb. So, at no point did the destroyer stop, yet the men were highly motivated and grabbed on for dear life. And to make sure the Germans did not take advantage of the destroyer's slower speed, several depth charges were thrown out first. This actually caused a few of the rescuees to pass out, but they were brought on board by their comrades. This same drive-by rescuing happened to Rushton and those on his lifeboat. The destroyer came alongside, yells and gestures indicated the heavy net, and Rushton and company jumped and clung to the rope webbing. Eleven men were never found, but having accounted for the remaining 22, the Tarbell sped up to make for Moorhead City, North Carolina. Those not seriously injured were put into the Monticello Hotel. The rest were taken to the nearest hospital. Rushton and several others were at the hotel, but were soon visited by non-smiling men in black suits. Right away, obviously believing their own propaganda about loose lips, these stern men asked everyone present if they had told anybody outside of the crew the details of this voyage. To Rushton's thinking, though it's not clear if he said this to these men that he suspected of being FBI agents during their two days of questioning, it would have been on this side of stupid to give away details of a route and then get on board that very ship that supposedly would be targeted. Either way, the 18-year-old had an idea about how to make sure this did not happen to him again. When he was cleared to leave, he went to New York City and walked into the nearest Navy recruiting station. If he was going to be shot at, he might as well be on a vessel that had the ability to shoot back. And Rushton wasn't the only one. The truth was, morale among the merchant marines was low and would go lower still. Men started drinking to the point of being unable to carry out their tasks, and some went AWOL when in port. The authorities tried to counter this with press releases and newsreels about how brave these men were, that they would feel the sting of a U-boat, but sign up to sail again, which was becoming less true. The safest course for a disgruntled merchant marine was to join the Army or Navy, as those branches would not give them back once the merchant marine explained the situation. And though the men were taking a pay cut, making more money while dying was not much of a future. The morale problem would continue as the darkest days for convoys along the East Coast was between mid-March and mid-April of that year. And just to prove these poor souls could not win for losing, when they did sign back up and stay within the Merchant Marine, they were then suspected of either being sympathetic to the Nazis, which is why they stayed to continue passing along information, or they were accused of being communists. 
But in truth, the main reason for this was that the merchant marine were within a union, which the military did not trust. And still, the unfair treatment of these vital men was not over. The military would often hint that perhaps the men were giving away information, but did not know they were doing so at the time. Indeed, German agents would hang out at various bars, like Manhattan's Old Hamburg, or the Highway Tavern in Jersey, or Schmidt's in Bayonne, New Jersey. But time would show that any successful intelligence picked up was minimal. Again, all the subs had to do was patrol a well-known route off the North Carolina coast and wait. As for the unjust treatment of the Merchant Marine, part of this would go on and be around for another 35 years. When some of the men were asked why they were giving up superior pay to join the Army or Navy, their first response was, ironically, to have a better survival rate. But after that, and again, this goes back to the negative connotations of being a part of a union, which the military and many politicians did not trust and saw as evil, the men would reply they were thinking of their families. If a GI or a sailor died, the family could receive veteran benefits. As for the merchant marines, sometimes, after being hauled out of the ocean, they were given a small advance to buy a few clothes, but then they were expected to find a new ship and sail on. That was the extent of their benefits. The family would find itself without a beloved father, son, grandson, or what have you, and without any further help from the authorities. Only after almost four decades from the war did the Defense Department and the Veteran Administration recognize the combatant status and award them veteran benefits in 1988. 